and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a podcast about energy and environmental issues by young people for all people. I'm Kelly Jang, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Chan, uh, Steve Chan now, actually, and um, my co-worker, Peter Caven, to discuss um, a new uh, order from FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So, Stephen and Peter, how are you doing today? Doing good. Thanks for the shout out to my new man, Steve. Uh, I'm a new man now. I've I've crossed the Rubicon. I've gone to the other side, and I've I've rebranded as one syllable shorter. Um, I really view it as a, a move to simple to simplify my life. I just want it to be one syllable. Just get it right out there. You know, I want to save myself microseconds every time I say my name and everyone else around me. So, uh, you know, gone gone through the rebranding stage and still trying to get used to it myself. Um, Pretty, pretty good. I think it's been a couple of weeks since we spoke last. A lot has happened in the last two weeks. My gosh. I mean, there was Tesla's battery day, which was surprisingly lackluster, but very technically, you know, exciting. If you could read the, all the technical details, you know, we had a presidential debate um, just you know, two days ago. Um, we, there, there have been some changes since last time we spoke and not last but not least, just very recently, FERC passed this order, order 222, is there one more two? 2222, um, which um, our, our expert here, um, Peter Caven, will, will explain to us in greater detail. So Peter, would you, um, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us you know, who you are, what, what you're about? Sure, thank you. Yeah, so I'm Peter Caven. I actually, I live in a little town in Washington State called Mount Vernon, which confusingly to Google has absolutely nothing to do with George Washington's former home, uh, other than potentially that's where they got the name from. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a policy lead for a distributed energy company. Um, uh, so yeah, that's what keeps me busy and certainly I have said, actually on the just on the name, so yes, it was order 2222. I haven't yet heard a definitive answer on why they went with that one. Um, Chairman Chatterjee did note that it's an important number for birthdays in his household, i.e. a lot of people have birthdays on the 2nd or the 22nd. I think he was mostly joking, but I, I haven't frankly heard a better uh, answer. Um, there are a number of ways to refer that's floating around energy, Twitter or anything, order 2222, order 2, order 2222. Um, I quite like, there was a, a colleague at a C-Power, another DR aggregator, uh, came up with order 2x4, um, i.e. it's the order that will help us build a home for distributed energy and wholesale markets. Um, but I think for the for the rest of this podcast, I'll just I'll refer to it as the DER order, which is probably the clearest way to say it. Right on, beautiful. So for, first and foremost, you mentioned a couple of things in there. You mentioned FERC, mentioned uh, Chairman Chatterjee. So first first of all, like what is FERC? Uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. What does that really mean? Yeah, it's a great question. So FERC is an independent federal regulator, um, which means a few things. So it sits under the Department of Energy, but we call it independent because, well, the executives so the president um, and the, the secretary of energy are not supposed to tell it what to do. The, the two parties, the two main parties nominate members of FERC so that those are at the highest level commissioners who make decisions. Um, but beyond that, it is given independence. It, you know, it, it comes up with decisions that fit with its interpretation of the Federal Power Act, which is the main piece of legislation that determines what it does. What it does is, just to step back for a second, most electric policy falls to the states, much like everything else on the U.S. Constitution. We say that the states take the authority. Um, there are exceptions to that, most obviously the interstate um, trade, 
So given that a lot of electric natural gas and some other energy products like oil are traded across state borders, there's a role for a, for a federal energy regulator, which is what FERC is. Um, just a, a short bit of the history. I mean, it, it was started in the 20s um, under a different name. It was in the Federal Power Commission. It was actually initially focused, strange enough, uh, primarily on hydropower. But its authority, its composition, what it gets up to has been, you know, sort of evolved over the years. Um, it's been called FERC specifically since uh, an overhaul in the 70s. Um, as I said, the, the main piece of legislation that sits behind it is the Federal Power Act, um, which similarly has existed since the 20s, but it's been overhauled a number of times. At its core, for what we'll get into later, what it's tasked with is ensuring that wholesale energy rates, so that can be electric, that can be natural gas, that can be other things, but you know, primarily here we're talking about electric, are just and reasonable. That's the, you know, that's the, the primary standard that it is held to. Um, and then just a note on sort of that's sort of more what it does, but who is it? I mean, it, it is a effectively an independent government department. It has, you know, hundreds of staff, but at, at top of it, it has up to five commissioners. Those five, uh, three should be nominated by the party of the presidency. So obviously today that's the Republican Party, two by the other party. Today, it only actually has three active commissioners. Uh, so there's two Republicans. I mentioned Chairman Chatterjee and also Commissioner McNamee and one Democrat, um, Commissioner Glick. And then there's two other commissioners awaiting nomination. Those would be Clements and Christie. Uh, so currently they have three commissioners. Soon, perhaps, depending on how fast the Senate moves, we may well have five commissioners. Um, so they are the, the people tasked, they and obviously their staff working with them, are the people tasked with coming up with the, the rules that govern um, interstate trade of, um, of energy. Awesome. And so one thing you, you mentioned that piqued my curiosity was you said that they um the members are elected by, you said, the three people by the, by the president's party and then uh, one or two other people by the other party, um, two, two people by the other party. And so that makes me, you know, first of all, think okay, so it's a federal independent um, group. Um, but, you know, that being said, I'm sure politics leaks into it. Um, and what ways um, does politics, um, as opposed to policy, but politics specifically, how, how does how is that swayed? Um, policies and, and orders in the past? And how, how does that um, translate itself into how these orders roll out? Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, I think the perception of FERC over time has certainly changed. I think historically it was, with certain exceptions, seen as actually quite actively or quite successfully, I guess, nonpartisan. It was seen as a body that, you know, there, there's all clearly most of what is gotten up to in Washington DC is very political, but it, it's 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 looking at what is ultimately a fairly you know specific area of energy policy. Um, I think most people have thought that over the last people put the date in different places, either frankly in the last two or three years, or perhaps going back maybe more like you know ten to twelve years. Um, yes, it has to some degree taken on. It has increasingly taken on more of a. Um, uh, more of a political role. Um, you know, some of the difference, you know, you asked about specific examples, some of the places that has gone are, uh, you know, one example is there's a very active debate right now about whether you can look in effectively FERC's governing document, which, as I said, is a Federal Power Act, the piece of federal legislation that says, you know, what, what FERC is supposed to do and what it's supposed to accomplish, whether you should look at that document as allowing FERC to basically to get involved in environmental issues, most specifically whether it can get involved in, you know, requiring either the, you know, taxing or more likely the pricing of carbon. Um, that's something that I think it's fair to say that if we'd had a current FERC under 
a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate, um, and therefore had had you know uh, you know a Democratic majority on FERC, it is much more likely that they would have taken the call it what you will legal political the decision uh, to take carbon into carbon and you know other greenhouse gas emissions into account when making their decisions. Today, that is not the case. They they do not you know the, obviously there's elements of that that fall under the 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 EPA, but under FERC they are very clear that as far as they're concerned, and by they obviously I primarily mean the you know the the Republicans who make up the majority on FERC are very clear that it is not part of their remit. You know their remit is to ensure just and reasonable rates. They are not getting involved in um, they are not getting involved in you know more broadly environmental in most cases in more broadly environmental issues. There are some cases in which, for example, around interstate, you know, oil pipelines, gas pipelines, they might, you know, touch on a little bit, but that, that's a very touchy issue. Others that folks have pointed to, and again, obviously you get great debates about whether this is a fair characterization or not, but is around, um, you know, where we've had debates around, you know, fuel security or other areas, um, most obviously like the, there's something called the MOPR, the minimum offer price rule, which is a fairly niche thing, but it, it, it's very important, which is applied to, um, the largest uh, U.S. wholesale market, which is PJM, and says that if you're a state-subsidized resource, um, you should it should be more difficult, or basically, yeah, it should be more difficult for you to get into capacity markets. The reason why that matters is that in most cases, state-subsidized in practice means states like New Jersey, like Illinois, like a few others, particularly in PJM, that are paying for or compensating clean energy. So whether that's you know Illinois paying for nuclear plants, so that's maybe New Jersey paying for solar plants, they want more clean energy. And as a state, you know you have a number of sticks and carrots to make that clean energy happen. Um, so one of them is that you can provide money, you can you know you can pay for it. What FERC did is it essentially tried to back out those payments in wholesale markets. So what I'm saying is you know so to speak, if the state gives a certain power plant, I don't know five million dollars. Uh, to you know, to provide clean energy, to encourage more clean energy on that state system, FERC is saying that within wholesale markets, we should effectively back out that five million dollars. We should say you shouldn't earn that from the capacity markets. So they would very much look at that as it's a oh. couple of things. So I want to stop you for a second because like you mentioned a couple of things I want to unpack there. Um, first of all, PJM, woo, repping PJM right here in Monroe, DC, not in Maryland. Let's go, PJM, largest uh, RTO ISO in in the states. Yes. Um, secondly, um, you mentioned um, a couple of things. So the question initially was talking about the politics in FERC and how it can express itself. You also meant, so you mentioned one of the things I found really interesting was you mentioned whether or not FERC should um, incorporate the, the, the carbon car, carbon emissions essentially as a as a cost, thinking about carbon pricing, thinking about how to how to effectively and accurately price that into the, into the models. And, and you said that because of, you know, certain um, Political uh, political parties might say let's not do that. Certain political parties might say yes, let's incorporate that into our calculation. So that was really interesting. Um, and then lastly, you mentioned this thing about capacity markets and wholesale markets. So for a newbie like myself, well, I'm just a solar developer, by the way. So all, all I do is build them out and interconnect them to the grid and make sure that they interconnect safely. I do not know a thing about capacity and wholesale markets. So what are those? Well, do you want me to answer what are wholesale markets or how far back down the rabbit hole do you want me to go? That's, I don't know. Kelly, what do you think? <laughs> um, I think just explaining what um, wholesale capacity markets are and how that relates to clean energy probably is sufficient for now. 
Okay. I'm, I'm happy to go as deep down this rabbit hole as you, as you like. Um, sure. So for customers in many states, they have a, I, I know you guys had a great you know, two-part series on um, the design of the grid and, and what goes into that, um, which I'll try not to repeat here. Just to say that for customers in many states, they have a single you know, vertically integrated electric utility that controls just about everything they do with electricity. For me in Washington State, that utility is Puget Sound Energy. Um, anything I want to do with my electricity, whether I want to buy it from them, whether I want to generate it via solar on my roof, basically the utility controls it. Now, there's exceptions that if I don't like something my utility is doing, I can complain to my state regulator, I can complain to my legislature, but I don't have many good alternatives to go around my utility, so to speak. Other Americans live under independent wholesale markets, and actually it's something like 200 million Americans, so it's actually a majority. You know, they still have the utility that controls the wires of the house, sends them a bill just like I get. But the power generation itself is owned by other companies, which compete in an open market to be the cheapest seller of electric energy. Now, the situation often gets more complicated very quickly. So, for example, some of them, it's not actually different companies. It's really just different divisions of the same conglomerate. But I don't need to go into that quite that level of detail. The point of importance is that in each of those wholesale markets, what you need are different services. One of them, most obviously, is you need energy. You need electrons. You need kilowatt hours that people need to use. Another is that you need ancillary services, which are you know some of the balancing services. So you know just to make sure that you know each grid stays at the frequency you need. You need those ancillary services. Also, grids pay for things like black start. So when in the event the grid totally goes down, not every unit is individually able to start. It's a bit ironic, but not every unit is individually able to start when there isn't other electricity already available. So you need some units that are available you know to start from nothing, and that's what they get paid for. Capacity. <laughs> capacity is a controversial topic. The idea of capacity is that you're paying for availability. So it's not just, you know, I'm, so let's say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a wholesale market operator and I'm looking at what I need over the next year uh, or the next three years, the next five years. Paying for energy is pretty simple. You know, I need X number of megawatt hours. I will pay for them. But of course, as a wholesale market operator, I'm afraid because one of the things I'm tasked with is ensuring that the lights stay on. So I'm afraid that, you know, one year, two years, three years down the road, maybe there aren't enough megawatt hours. Like I go to the market and I say, hey, I need whatever it is, 20 million of them. I only 18 million are available. And I'm like, oh dear, the lights are going to go off. Everybody's going to hate me. Life's going to be bad. So the idea of a capacity market is you have a separate payment for a plant to say that for a certain period, usually it's over the course of a year, it will be available. So if you need me, I will be there. The sort of complicated part is that you're not paying for the energy it comes out with. You'll pay for that separately. You're just paying for that availability. You're paying for them to say, over this year, usually pretty much 24-7, 365, I will be available if you, the market operator, call on me. Now, there's great debate over whether you actually need those capacity markets. Texas, most notably, uh, does not have a capacity market. The way they work is simply on the basis that um, when you get into that kind of stress grid situation, the price will go up. And in Texas, it can go up super high. So it can go up to, so just for context, usually wholesale market prices are something like $30 a megawatt hour. In Texas, they can go from $30 uh, to $9,000. So the idea is that you're being paid in inverted commas to be available by the fact that you're hoping for the price, you as a generator are hoping for the price to go super high. And then, you know, you get paid a lot for that short period when the price are high and then you're good to go. In other markets, for a variety of reasons, they see that as frankly risky for both sides. That could be super expensive cost. 
sorry, it could be super expensive for load or the, you know, the high prices might not happen, which is great for load for customers like us, but is not great if you're a generator and that's how you're hoping to get paid. They look to smooth out that uh, by just having a single capacity payment. Um, so, you know, PGM, New York ISO, ISO New England have these capacity markets that therefore are a substantial chunk, just to put it in numbers, um, in PGM, the total market, so everything that PGM controls is something like uh, about $50, $55 billion. Capacity of that is something like eight, it, about 8 to $9 billion. So there's a chunk of the money that's not being given for actual megawatt hours, for the actual energy itself. It's being paid to make sure that resources are available. And just the, the last thing I'll say on this is to tie it back to your question most directly, what gets capacity payments is therefore very contentious because you know if, if you can you know if you can get a payment just to be available even before you start generating the first kilowatt hour or megawatt hour of electricity you know that that's great for ensuring that you're either that the plant you have today stays open or the plant you want to open will be you know will be viable going forward so by deciding who does and does not get capacity payments you can have a great influence over what um you know what resources are actually on the grid I see. And so would that, if would, would an accurate way of summing that up be something like, uh, or maybe an example of it would be like, for example, solar and wind might not be considered for capacity markets because there's we can't really pay for availability. You can only pay for like the electrons or the kilowatt hours of energy, but you can't pay for oh, I need energy right now. Make the sun shine. Make the wind blow. Is that is that right? Put it like this: If I worked for a company that primarily owned coal, you know natural gas, nuclear central generators, I would say that, yes, you have hit the nail on the head, that we, in this hypothetical situation, own a bunch of generators that can run, barring outages, 24-7, 365, we are always available. Providing capacity payments to anyone who is not available, 24-7, 365, uh, is not reasonable. You know, why, why should they, you know, if you were going to give a capacity payment to wind or solar, solar, you know, might only be meaningfully available for you know, 10 to 12 hours a day, or perhaps even less than that, depending on where you are, um, that's not fair. Realistically, in, in uh, each grid handles it a little differently, but what they actually do is they they look at when, as the wholesale market, they're most likely to need that power and how much of that the, the resource is available for. So you could see a situation in which, um, you know, so yes, solar typically, unless there's a particularly bright moon, um, does not typically generate a lot at three o'clock in the morning. Also, grids do not tend to run into great problems at three o'clock in the morning. In most cases, and there are exceptions to this, as with everything, but in most cases, when a grid is going to run into trouble, when you're most likely running out of energy, it's times like, you know, three, four, five p.m. in the afternoon. Um, at that time, if solar is always generating, or you know, the vast majority of cases will be generating lots, then it would make sense for solar to get, if not a full capacity payment, then you know, some sort of derated, like most of the capacity payment. Um, so certainly, you know, there there is some. Those resources can participate uh, in most of the wholesale in most of the wholesale capacity markets. It's really then you get into a, a question of like, what should they get paid? Like, does solar does solar you know is it worth fifteen percent, twenty percent, thirty percent? It's probably not worth a hundred percent, as you said. It's not there all the time, but it it should be open to some sort of payment. So currently, is this does the capacity payment for solar differ on like a state by state basis? How does storage play into that? Is this something that FERC is, um, has issued like rules on that are standardized or 
How does that work? Yeah, so you're you're asking about what sort of the current status is and also what you know role FERC plays in it. I think there's really two main things to say there. So one is that you know it's, it's very much governed at the you know the the wholesale market operator level. So whether that's PJM, you know, from a forward capacity market point of view, which is what we're talking about here, it's that's therefore mostly we're talking about PJM, ICE New England, and New York ISO. So it's mostly a mid-Atlantic and Northeast phenomenon. Um, so they're each working through different processes of what they look like, but there are some similarities. PJM, for example, is actually coming towards the end of putting together a, a revised way of looking at this. It's It gets, fr- frankly, very nerdy very quickly. It's, it's something called the ELCC, or um, Effective Load Carrying Capacity. It's effectively just, ELCC is just a fancy way of doing what I, what I said a few minutes ago, of looking at, we think we will need capacity at these hours, these times of the day, these times of the year. How much is that resource available at those times, and therefore what should we pay for it? So therefore, you might look at a, a solar array that you know might well be you know useful 40% of the time when the grid is most likely to be under stress, uh, but is not for the other 60%, so therefore you pay it 40% of whatever the prevailing capacity price is. Maybe if you added storage to that, that combined solar and storage system could be available for 90% of the time when we're most likely to need it. Um, and then you could pay 90% of what the you know the capacity price is. Um, so that's encouraging, so that, that is providing a, a capacity payment, but it's also encouraging resources that are available at the most at the most useful times. I think in terms of you know some of the main decisions that are what are the main ways in which FERC has got involved in this and you know has you know a leeway over this, it doesn't it doesn't directly enforce it has preferences in this area, certainly. It, it hasn't come out with a single, I wouldn't say it's come out with a single unified um, ruling of what all of these systems have to look like. That's more on a system operator by system operator basis. I think the main way is um, a part of influence here is something I talked earlier, which is also around, you know, where, I think the simplest way to explain it is something that where a state is providing. So let's say, you know, you have a solar array, um, you know, you you would expect if you could get it into capacity markets, you could get a payment of, let's say it's a bigger one, so you get a payment of two million a year. But also from your state, you've gotten a payment of, you know, let's say three million a year for, um, you know, for clean energy, because many states, you know, in PGM, obviously places like New Jersey and Illinois come to mind, want to pay for clean energy. The question that then comes is, if I own a natural gas plant next door, I don't like the fact that you're getting money from both the state and the wholesale market. Um, so what I would get, do is go to FERC and argue, well, actually, that's really, you know, that is not, therefore, the wholesale market's not fair competition because I'm getting, you know, I, my gas plant, I only get the capacity payment. Whereas the solar plant, um, I might also say, is delivering a less useful service because it's not available 24-7. And also it's getting money from both the state and the wholesale market. So then what I would argue to FERC, and which people did and they were successful in it, was effectively they should back out those payments. So you should, you, you as the solar plant, if you want to get into the capacity market, should be able to, um, should be able to, you know, uh, show that you would be able to uh, participate fairly if you, uh, if you hadn't received the payments. Um, so it, it's backing that out in that way. So it's, it's, in other words, it's making it harder for what are typically state subsidized renewables to participate in capacity markets. So, it, so to summarize, it's both the what amount do you get paid? Do you get 10%, 20%, 50%, whatever it is? And it's also to what degree should we have to you know, back out the payment you're getting from states once you're participating in wholesale markets. And now it's time for 
Evans Climate Fact of the Day. Did you know that I've actually been here for the recording of this episode the whole time, actively contributing throughout? How, you ask? Well, I've trained my voice to reach wavelengths that are inaudible to the human ear. Unfortunately, this is a more helpful skill for alerting nearby canines than for recording podcasts, and I've recently experienced difficulty in shifting back to my normal vocal register. But enough about my personal life. Let's get back to the show as Stephen, Kelly, and Peter detail FERC Order 2222. Peter, would you mind detailing the context of FERC Order 2222 for us? Sure, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. So just for now, I'll, I'll use the term DR order. But, you know, we've we've talked about a number of the things around, you know, wholesale markets, around um, what that means for clean energy. You know, those markets were very much created, really, I mean, they were created in, in multiple spurts, but, you know, they were most, most crystallized as they exist today in the late 90s. When they were crystallized in the late 90s, they were designed for the resources that existed at that time, which obviously primarily meant large centralized power plants, so most notably, you know, coal, natural gas, nuclear. There are other resources, including the kind of distributed resources that I work a lot with, like solar storage, um, uh, you know, demand response, that can participate, but often in special ways, so either with a number of restrictions around them that make it difficult or in some cases impossible for those customers to sell all the wholesale services they're capable of. So you'll have maybe like a 200 megawatt gas plant that can sell, you know, energy capacity on solar services. But if you had, you know, maybe an aggregation of a lot of different solar storage, demand response, etc., maybe they can't sell all of those services or they can sell them, but it's much more difficult. The point of the order is to say that the treatment of distributed energy uh, in wholesale markets has been treating them effectively as second-class citizens, that they've they've been able to participate on lesser terms other resources. So the core judgment of the order is that the treatment is no longer acceptable, that distributed energy's treatment hasn't been fair, um, to use FERC language, it hasn't been just and reasonable, and that the wholesale markets need to get their act together to fix it. So this is this is big, right? Is this like, like is it pretty big, Am I, or is it... Not as big as, as I, I think. Like for, for me, as a solar developer, I almost feel like we have a whole new market to, to, to get, you know, make business off of. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think is it a big order? Yes, it is. I'd say you know where the degree to which it is a big deal differs a lot by both the type of resource and also physically where you are, like your location in the country. Um, you know that FERC is clearly not the only part is not the only organization pushing for this. Um, you know, particularly in you know New York and to some degree California, they have been moving in this direction anyway. So New York, for example, has something it calls the DR participation model, which really implements. It was it was written before the the DR order for FERC, but really it implements probably 95, 99% of what um, of what is in the the FERC order. So therefore, it doesn't <laughs> it hasn't actually been implemented yet. It'll be probably going to practice in late 2022. But this is something that you know certain market operators were moving towards. For others, they frankly were not. So this will push them in that direction. Um, I mean, I think you know it, what it will mean. Frankly, is that both many more resources will get access to wholesale markets, will get to earn money there, and therefore, in many cases, it will make more sense for homes and businesses to deploy distributed energy. Um, 
And I think it's probably also worth saying that, you know, we so the, the order is referred to as the order on aggregated DR. So what DR being distributed energy resources. So those are anything that's on the distribution system um, and typically is less than 20 megawatts of things like energy storage, solar, um, EV chargers, things like that. I think it's probably just worth here adding that, you know, why does it matter that they're aggregated? I think really there's there's two main reasons for that. One is that Wholesale market operators, as I said, they start this very much in the position of they're most comfortable with 200 megawatt, 300 megawatt, you know, 3,000 megawatt, even you know, centralized power plants. They're not as comfortable with very small resources. You know, there's one world in which they independently dispatch, you know, everybody's three kilowatt water heater. They really do not want to do that. So, in part, the the requirement of the DR order from FERC is that you be allowed to aggregate up to 100 kilowatts to participate. So that's that's really a trade-off of um, not requiring uh, independent market operators to independently, you know, dispatch everybody's three kilowatt water heater, but also allow people to as many resources as possible to participate. The other area in which it really matters is that aggregations are so much more than the sum of their parts. So similar to something we talked about earlier, um, an aggregation of you know solar PV, energy storage, and load curtailment can deliver a range and depth of grid services that each individual component may not. So, you know, most obviously people think of, you know, solar obviously is, you know, delivers power at the day, doesn't deliver at night. You know, wind delivers it at, you know, it delivers it to some degree all the time, but often delivers more at night. You have things you can deliver via aggregation that you cannot deliver individually. Um, So that's really part of the reason why it's it's a big deal for many of the resources that I deal with. So prior to this order, um, what was the minimum size of a generator that could participate? And it, it, you had to be like a single generator. You couldn't be an aggregation to participate in wholesale markets. Is that correct? Kind of. So it differed a ton by both each. So each system operator and also each product within each system operator had different rules for these kind of things. I should say that, you know, within the world that are DERs, um, there are there have been successes. So for most obviously, you know, people talk about demand response. The largest market operator in the US is PGM, which is a peak load of something like 150 gigawatts. Depending on what year you look at, about eight to fifteen of those gigawatts um, of PGM's available capacity comes from demand response. Now that exists today. It existed before the DR order. So that's one way in which it's working. So those those are homes and businesses providing uh, capacity um, into PGM's market. The issue becomes, to your question, that when you look at other markets and also when you look at other products within markets, even within PGM itself, the, the rules differ hugely. In some cases, yes, you simply cannot aggregate, um, you can't aggregate at all, often on the ancillary services side, or it's very limited in terms of what you can aggregate. So for example, maybe it's only, you know, you, you have to aggregate up to 100 kilowatts, but you can't go above um, one megawatt. So that the aggregation just can't be bigger than a certain size. Or the reverse, which is that in some cases you you have to be bigger than 100 kilowatts. You have to aggregate up to 500 kilowatts, a thousand kilowatts, you know, 5,000 kilowatts or five megawatts. So there's a there's a wide range of different requirements in different markets um, that make it either difficult or frankly economically impossible um, for distributed energy to participate. Um, so I guess one of my questions. Um, so this all sounds really cool to me. It sounds like. Um, we're unlocking an extra value tier for distributed energy resources like solar, wind, batteries, demand um, response. Um, so we're unlocking that extra tier of value. What, how, so this is like, you know, we're at the, the macro, 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 like the first orders are the biggest things that you have essentially. 
Um, how does this translate to, you know, day-to-day business? Like, how, how does this um, get get translated into, um, you know, a dollars and cents um, if, if I'm a solar developer developing you know, a piece of, a piece of an acre of solar in rural Minnesota, let's say, um, is this, does this mean that, you know, I'll be compensated at a higher kilowatt hour rate? Um, and how, how does that structure, rate structure break out? Um, yeah, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think, you know, depending where you are in the country, so, sorry, did you say that solar developer would be in Minnesota? Yeah. Okay. So if it's in Minnesota, it's in the Midwest ISO. So I think, you know, I, particularly if, so I, I think in, in some ways it's perhaps less, it's relevant, but it's perhaps less interesting to, if you're a, so to speak, a single developer deploying a single system, it, it in many cases, you can actually, strange enough, despite the word, you can be a DR aggregation of one thing. Like you can be a DR aggregation that is the, the component of that aggregation is one solar system. In, in most cases, the the value of the aggregation is not going to be that high just because you're in a single system. Um, you know, to, 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 to answer your question, I think, you know, to, to let me pick in a specific example. So let's say, you know, you're a, you know, a small business, I don't know, let's say you're a small courier business. Um, you're thinking about moving to electric, ve- moving to electric vehicles from the, you know, the gas-based cars you use today. You're sort of on the fence about it. You know, you, there are advantages to electric vehicles, you know, less maintenance, everything that, you know, you're aware of from your previous episode. But, you know, for the for the for a equivalent quality of car, it is somewhat more expensive. Also, you have to put in the electric vehicle chargers. Today, depending on where you are in the country, I mean, if frankly, if you're in California, New York, you will get a ton of support from your utility as required by their state regulator in order to do that. In much of the rest of the country, you will get much less, if not no support at all, in terms of you know incentives. And also, not just you might not get a support, but you might actually um, have to pay quite large amounts to your utility in order to get the you know to get the infrastructure in place to put in those EV charges. If that means that you know basically your site's pulling a lot more power, your utility might charge you in order to do that upgrade. Now, once you pay all of that, you know you get some benefits. You get to, for example, you know you save on all the gas you were paying for before because you're buying electricity and that's cheaper. But those implicitly those or explicitly those ev chargers have capabilities they can provide grid services but currently depending on which market you're in it can be very difficult to actually provide those services and then earn those revenue what the dr order means is that if for example let's say you've i don't know 10 50 kilowatt ev chargers across your locations you can aggregate those together up to at least 100 kilowatts worth of capability sell those services into into wholesale markets and then, you know, earn revenue from those. So say, you know, if you're providing, let's say you can use those those chargers to provide frequency regulation, you know, that will help pay for some of, you know, some of, if not perhaps in some cases, all of the cost of those chargers. So what it's really doing is it's providing revenue to those homes and businesses that deploy distributed energy. And then most importantly, it's encouraging them to to deploy that in the first place. You know, it's providing part of the financing. So really it's about encouraging implicitly it's probably worth saying that when I talk about these impacts, the rule is written very much from a perspective of free, you know, uh, fair competition. You know, the rule, uh, it doesn't mention the word carbon. It doesn't mention the word greenhouse. It barely mentions the word renewable. This is, you know, it's, it's written by FERC, which is, as I mentioned, majority Republican. They're not doing it to deploy clean energy. 
But in practice, if you look at the distributed energy that people actually want to deploy, in the vast majority of cases, it is clean. So this rule, in short, will help deploy clean energy. I see. And does it, am I seeing this right, that it tends to benefit more um, people who, um, entities that own large amounts of assets? So it's not going to be so much, like, I, I'm, I'm like working on an independent solar developer. It's not really going to um, benefit us directly, maybe some trickle down, but ultimately it's whoever owns those assets. So like a, a next era energy uh, utility, like a large utility that you know, just owns and operates DERs in general, that's, that's really like the target benefactor here? Kind of. I mean, I would say, I mean, obviously there's, there's a ton of different business models. Certainly if you're, for example, if, if you're a solar developer and you're just, you know, you develop the product, you develop the project, you put it in the ground and you immediately sell it. It won't, you won't directly be influenced by this with the exception of once the, you know, whoever's, whoever's operating the resource, they may benefit from participating in wholesale markets. So therefore, you know, what they're willing to pay you might be somewhat higher because, you know, what they'll ultimately earn is higher. So therefore that flows back onto you, even if you're not participating directly. I think, you know, in terms of who, who will benefit most, I mean, I think frankly, there will be, there will be some element of a land grab as these rules get, get deployed over, you know, primarily over the next few years. And actually, I should come back to, you know, what the next steps in this look like, but there will be a land grab in different participants. I mean, there are companies like, you know, Analex, C-Power, Centric Business Solutions, you know, Voltus, others come to mind that are deploying and aggregating DRs today. They're, they're third-party aggregators. Aggregating these things is all they do um, that will look to work with a variety of parties. So the, the reason we're mentioning them is simply the, you know, whether whether the system is owned by, you know, it can be owned by a bank, it can be owned by somebody financing it, it can be owned by, you know, it can be owned by, as you said, someone like a Nextera, it could, excuse me, it could be owned by, say, you know, a municipality, for example, a town could deploy, say, some solar storage. They don't, those people that own the resources don't have to participate directly, and frankly, in the vast majority of cases, will not. They will work with a dedicated party, a dedicated aggregator that will help them participate, who will you know, manage that participation and ultimately will provide them via the wholesale market with the check for their participation. Um, so that's really you know, the main people I, I see being that conduit between the customers and the, the wholesale markets themselves. Awesome. That's that's really cool. That I love it, man. It's it's so uh, technical and dense, and so much of it goes over my head. But I feel like I'm absorbing some of it at least. <laughs> oh, last question um, for me, Art. Um, so, what um, does this order not do? And then, what would some of the next steps for FERC to take to uh, be for um, helping to support more uh, distributed energy resources? Excellent. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Obviously, there's a lot there. So just I'll say three things. One is in terms of next steps, what happens so that FERC has come out with a rule. It then gets published in a somewhat uh, dusty tome called the Federal Register, which will happen in the next few weeks, um, may even have happened by the time this is posted. Then each system operator has almost a year. It's actually 270 days to come out with a rule, which then FERC has to approve. And then um, they'll typically ask for about another year to implement it. So all long story short, we will actually have, you know, participation models in the ground being able for people to use probably around the end of 2022 uh, that will actually implement what we talked about today. As I said, that will differ a lot, you know, sort of system operator by system operator. You know, folks like New York and California will mostly say, yep, we're good. You know, we have it all under control. You know, we already have the plans in place. 
others like you know PGM and MISO, for example, in the Midwest uh, will frankly have more work to do. Uh, second thing is, you know, what does it not do? That's a great question. I think probably two things are worth saying there. One is one thing that you know some developers had worried about was a state opt-out. So that's saying that for a certain state, well, it's Kentucky or Ohio or other places, they simply don't have to be part of this. They can just say, nope, we're not interested. That doesn't exist. There is no state opt-out. So you know, if, if you're under a covered uh, system operator, uh, you can't opt-out. The, the people that can opt-out of this or are only opt-in if they choose to are small utilities. So that's utilities that sell less than 4 million megawatt hours a year. They're not part of this unless their state regulator says they are. The justification given there is that um, particularly those utilities which tend to be, say, municipal or co-op utilities, they were concerned about the cost it would take for them to change their systems um, to be, you know, part of this distributed energy revolution. So they said, well, you know, probably the, the costs, we think the costs for us outweigh the benefits. And so we don't want to be part of this, or at least we don't want to have to be part of this. So they, so if you're part of a very small utility, you may not, um, you, you may not be covered by this. The other uh, couple things are that um, it's only FERC jurisdictional system operators. So most obviously, um, if you don't, if like me in Washington State, you don't live under an independent system operator, you're not covered by this because there is no independent system operator for you to sell your services to. Or uh, ERCOT, so Texas primarily, uh, is not FERC jurisdictional, so they're not covered by this. And then just the final thing I'll mention, but I should say that ERCOT is doing a lot of good stuff in this area, so it's it's moving in a somewhat similar direction, but it just isn't doing it because FERC's telling it. And then just the final thing it doesn't do is interconnection. So let's say, you know, you want to put, you know, you have a small business and you want to put a 200 kilowatt solar system on your roof. Um, and let's say that, you know, that business is in New Jersey. Once you get that solar system properly interconnected on your roof. It's connected to the distribution utility, it's generating power, it's all good. Once you have that system interconnected, selling that power to a wholesale system is governed, will be governed by the systems that are set up by order yeah, 2222. Getting it interconnected in the first place, getting your utility to say, yes, we're comfortable with you connecting to our system, it can inject this much power, um, you do or do not need to pay us for some upgrades. That's all exclusively state jurisdictional. So that means that FERC can't tell utilities to interconnect um, your resources. So if you went to your utility with that certain project and they said, whoa, you know, you need to give us $50,000 to interconnect this and it's going to take three years, nothing in, in the DER order from FERC changes that. So, you know, that, that just is what it is. Um, and then I think that, you know, that the final part of your question was about, you know, what else could FERC do to support, you know, clean energy? In part, I would just repeat that they, <laughs> FERC does not look at what was in the DR order as supporting clean energy directly, though in practice it it absolutely will. It's simply for them about ensuring fair access to you know clean uh, to fair markets. What it could do, and obviously particularly if we have a, a change in you know the president and a change in the Senate, uh, is become somewhat more likely. I mean, really, there's all sorts of things um, being put together. I know there's a you know there's a paper, for example, being developed by a, a group called Clean Energy for Biden that goes through a lot of the answers to that question. Frankly, in terms of what you know could be done, most obviously, as we had recently with the discussions um, in FERC yesterday uh, around whether actually at the federal level or perhaps at the you know at the regional level, you know, FERC could encourage or possibly even mandate, but more likely encourage various forms of, you know, taking into account 
the costs of inaction on on clean energy, most obviously via you know some sort of pricing system on carbon. That's something just to say that you know New York, for example, has a <laughs> ironic, maybe not ironic, but New York has a uh, carbon pricing system for its um, for its wholesale electricity markets ready to go. It is written. It just there's a uh, this probably needs its own podcast, but there's a whole uh, back and forth between the 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 ISO, the the system operator, and the state legislature and the state um, executive on whether to actually implement it. But it could make it happen relatively quickly, probably in the course of twelve months. So encouraging that, so more carbon pricing in wholesale markets, is absolutely something that you know a, a future FERC could make happen to encourage clean energy. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks for that, Peter. Looks like we still got some work to do, and hopefully uh, a lot of those things that you mentioned, like the carbon pricing through FERC, will happen in due time. Um, in the meantime, so we're going to wrap up the last segment of our show is the Green News Spiel. So, um, Peter, do you have one? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, we've we've talked at quite a high level, obviously, this conversation about what does FERC do and, you know, what's what's the DR order doing? I just thought I'd, I'd really sort of narrow down in, in one specific area of clean energy. I just, so there's a, um, uh, there was a, a poll conducted by Susquehanna Polling and Research, um, I think it was last, maybe two weeks ago now, and specifically it was on the topic of there's a, a bill being considered in the state of Pennsylvania about community solar. So the idea that, you know, rather than necessarily having solar on your roof, you should be able to take part in a, in a, a solar project that's, um, you know, not located on your property, but, you know, you can take advantage of the benefits of that. Just to, all I wanted to highlight was that of the, of the Pennsylvania voters they polled on that, they got 77% support for community solar, including uh, 68% of Republicans. So more than two thirds of Republicans thought that allowing community solar, which is obviously allowed in all sorts of states and is a huge contributor to clean energy in Minnesota and New York and other places, but is not currently allowed in Pennsylvania, there was strong support among both sides of the aisle and independents for community solar. Um, so I just, I frankly, I like that story. Um, I guess I'll go next. So um, about a week ago, there was an executive order from the governor of California to ban gas-powered cars by 2035. Um, so this is a big win for EVs in the environment. I think it's a good step, um, but I'm generally, I generally think that California needs to do a lot more to encourage <clears throat> transit-oriented development and change their land use patterns. Because even if you're driving your EV, if you're commuting from, let's say, Tracy, California, in like close to the Central Valley, into the city, you're still creating congestion, um, and it's still not clean compared to taking public transit, encouraging walkability, um, and just like building denser housing in urban areas near public transit. There's been several bills about this in the California legislature that have died for various reasons, but I think... I think the the move to ban gas-powered cars, it, it sounds good on its face, but it's kind of ignoring the land use problem, which I think is a lot more critical in the long term. Cool. And I will go last year. Um, my Green News spiel this week is on a report put out by the Commodity Commodity Future Trading Commission. And this is an, another independent federal uh, commission, similar to FERC. And this one is um, essentially a group of Wall Street um executives and, and members, and, um, they are tasked with um, essentially overseeing the U.S. derivatives market, 
they released a report that said, quote, climate change poses a major risk to the stability of the U.S. financial system, end quote. So essentially, they, they're, they're foreseeing financial havoc if no action is taken on climate change. And again, these are Wall Street bankers. They're, they're not climate activists. These are not, you know, um, young people on the streets marching. They're, they're reading the economic cues. And um, obviously, climate change affects everything in our world. And our world is where we do business. So obviously, it's, it's going to cause uncertainty and um, financial hardship. Um, so uh, the missions of the, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission is to promote the integrity, resilience, and vibrancy of the U.S. derivatives market through sound regulation. Their vision statement is to be the global standard for sound derivatives regulation in the world. And um, yeah, again, I just I, I always try to stress that this climate change, while it is a huge societal problem and you know, moral imperatives and societal imperatives here, this is also going to hurt your bottom line. Your your wallet will also is also at stake here. So for any any individual who listen. That are more about you know you know practical practical economics. This affects you too. Um, so yeah, that's that's my feel. And thank you, Peter, for your time. We appreciate you. Kelly and I are speaking over each other. This is not our job. <laughs> thank you so much. We really appreciate your, your expertise, your your voice on this matter, and educating us and our listeners. Um, yeah. Any any final words from you, Peter? Uh, no, uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been a great experience, so I'm happy to provide the information. Yeah. With that, we wrap up the segment, and we wrap up the show. Thanks for listening, um, and we'll be back in two weeks. And leave a rating and review <laughs> on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Mm-hmm.